Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Okay, it looks like we are live, but we're having some technical difficulties getting set up. For those of you who came in at four o'clock, we're I sorry for the delay. Okay, I'm just checking it right now to see who's got live. That it is notifying live now. So okay, I'm so it is. We are live voice. now. Sorry for the delay. We're just giving it a minute to uh, make sure everything's straightened out. It looks like YouTube decided to change around its entire uh, live streaming system and key on us uh, in the last month. So always glad for those little technical changes. Welcome to fall. Yeah. <laughs> fall into change. Uh, Sindri, can you just confirm real quick that we've actually got this live? Oh, I see a picture of you this time. Yeah. Well, it looks like the nice prepared advanced thing is not actually there, but... Alright. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started with the questions. We'll sort any problems out in the meantime. We have to break in about half an hour. Okay. Um, well, we had a few questions from September that we wanted to address while people are adding their questions to the chat, so please be sure to do that if you want to uh, get your question in on this live stream. And the first question we're going to answer today is from Nicholas Nelson. What do you think of nuclear space planets? Uh, nuclear space planets? Um, we did an episode on those... I'm uh, sorry, planes. Nuclear space planes. <laughs> That's why you're looking at me funny. Um, <laughs> Let's rephrase that question. What do you think of nuclear space planes? That's what happens when people put typos in the questions. For something like <laughs> well, if we all talk about uh, nuclear space planets. We had a couple one time with, uh, what was it... Uh, uh, rocket raccoons, or something? Vacuum raccoons. <laughs> uh, nuclear space planes. We did an episode on the nuclear option some years back, looking at using them, and one of the things we stressed there is that they're really, they're great for interplanetary stuff, they're great for cislunar travel, but the biggest problem they have when you deal with them as atmospheric craft is they do make for good space planes. They do make for an ideal way to get off the planet cheaper, um, though not as much as you might hope for the no more advantage you have with nuclear. And of course the problem though is you have the big issue that planes are flimsy, planes blow up, planes get shredded, and uh, planes full of radioactive material that uh, do that while they're traveling can uh, potentially respray that all over the place. Now, mind you, uh, 20 kilograms of fissile material is not going to leave, you know, leave a state that flies over in some kind of disaster zone, but it's not an ideal scenario. And also you have the option to blow up by the pad, which would be a lot more concentrated. Uh, and of course that is only for certain types of nuclear engines. There are some what we call a dirty uh, engine that are actually great for deep space, which is already irradiated, but which you never turn on inside an atmosphere. That'd be like a war crime because it basically shoots radioactive material out the back. So certain types of ones, like the nuclear thermal system, those are safe so long as the thing doesn't actually get destroyed in the process of flying. So I don't see nuclear space planes really being much of an option on Earth in the future. 
Okay, we have a donation of $10 from DeWall, and he says, I know you're a fan of the Babaverse series. There is a darker version that Dust is putting out. The author published the whole thing on Reddit, and he wants to know if you have heard of Chrysalis. Mm -hmm. I actually have just a couple of days ago. Um, I haven't had a chance to watch more like the first 10 minutes of the first podcast on it. Uh, it is a very similar style. For those of you who are familiar with Bob of Us by Dennis e. Taylor, which, uh, quick congratulations to him. I just noticed he had the best times, uh, New York Best Times sell- New York Times bestseller list t- uh, today or yesterday uh, with his new book, which I actually was now for reader on. Um, and... Uh, What's the name I, of that book? That yeah. book series is the Bob of War series. Uh, the new book on that one is, oh, wow, because he changed the title in the middle of it. Uh, yeah, I think it's the uh, Heaven's River now, but it was the Search for Bender originally. Um, but uh, the Christmas series, I haven't had a chance to look at it too, too much, but it is one of those uh, ones where I think they're trying to look at Von Neumann machines from more of an angle. I, the first bit of the podcast reminded me a lot of the original novel, original scene from the novel Consider Phlebas by Ian M. Banks. It seemed like it was a little bit darker, but I didn't have a chance to evaluate the whole series yet. I am looking forward to listening to it more. Very good. We have a question today from Isaac Bordeaux. What do you think is the future of movies? What will they look like during something like a galactic empire? Well, I don't know if you really have this year's movies so much as a, a key idea. One of the things about, um, about space-time lag is that whatever Earth releases is going to reach those places as brand new to them. They won't know it's coming out uh, even if it was a century over by the time it reached them a century away. Because that light lag issue really does keep everything up to date. You're not waiting on it anymore. You're waiting on it here. Uh, getting your revenue back or your ideas or comments back from them. If you release something, you know, that could take a while. Or you release a blockbuster, you know, seeing how, we're going to see how it's going to do uh, across the galaxy. Be in for a quarter of a million year wait for all the information to come back from those places, seeing whether they liked it or not. Which That could be somewhat cost ineffective. <laughs> might be, yeah. How you'd actually go about monetizing almost any information system across that's proprietary across multiple solar systems is very hard to say. But I suspect that's an important question to get answered because until we've colonized probably several thousand star systems, uh, the majority of the population is likely to live in this one. And the majority of entertainment, things like that, is likely to come from this solar system. So, and it's important not just a revenue stream for this system, but also as a way of homogenizing the colonies that leave. So, not just off on their own, completely mutating away from our culture and potentially becoming hostile, which also means it's important to turn out good movies because you don't want to make them hostile when they see whatever you sent out was crap. <laughs> so, you recently did an episode on Mars, and you have a question from the Durak Are Martian salt underground lakes suitable for life forms? Until we've actually had a chance to analyze them and see their extent and their actual composition, we really can't um, speak to their ability to be life-bearing. Um, I'm amusingly, since we are not always as good as we should be at about sterilizing things we send out there, if we do send something out to probe them directly and it turns out they are very suitable for life, uh, they are likely to rapidly become full of life, assuming they're not already so. And again, anything in the solar system that is really frugal, I mean, really ideal for life, is quite likely I've already gotten at some point, even if it was just from some collision or explosion off of Earth, sending some very durable and hardy microorganism to those uh, to those moons or um, planets. But we just don't know until we're actually there. And we also want to make sure we avoid jumping the gun on any of these things in terms of how suitable they are for life, because we just did that with Venus. Right? The big surprise thing about Venus, having phosphine gas, now it looks like that measurement was wrong. And so... 
until we've actually explored these things in detail and studied them, they could be as hostile as living in a jar of rat poison, or which is what phosphine gas is, or they could be a paradise. So we just don't know until we actually get a look at them directly. Ellie Void says, do you think that the only way to travel beyond Earth is as cyborgs, considering the limitations of human biology? One of the things I always like to say about cyborgs, and also in terms of things like genetic engineering or virtual reality, is we want to be really careful when we start using definitions like what is a human versus what is a cyborg, or what is real versus what is augmented reality or uh, virtual reality. Um, I'm wearing glasses. I'm a cyborg. What we usually mean by that is someone who's got a lot more machine or um, computer augmentation than we have right now, but that's a moving goalpost. I don't know if you're ever having anyone who actually just declares themselves to be a cyborg. Um, the original term cyborg, though, uh, wasn't even talking about mechanical bits. It was the term coined for modifications by drugs or gene therapy that we might have to do to astronauts to get them to be able to live on other worlds. We would have a hard time probably living as we are on a lot of those planets, even inside pressurized facilities. Whether or not you're doing that kind of modification through some drug therapies or through some retrovirus gene engineering or some sort of mental or physical augmentation, that's hard to say. But I think the future belongs to cyborgs only in the sense that I think that when you have a very nice, handy, and trustworthy adaptation you can add on, like a little overlay to your eyeball that lets you check your phone or watch the TV out the corner of your eyes so you're carrying out a smartphone, you're probably going to use that. And it just depends on when do you decide you're a cyborg. And I think the answer is that most of the population will never regard themselves that way. Radek Marcinko says, What do you think of qualitative classification of extraterrestrial civilizations instead of quantitative scheme of Kardashevs? Um, the Kardashev scale is useless for qualifying civilizations. We have two episodes coming out soon, though. Uh, Kardashev scale is basically planet, star, galaxy in terms of energy supply. Uh, stars vary in intensity by uh, factors of a billion or more in terms of brightness. So that's not a very handy scale for precision. Um, and all it does is talk about your power consumption. Uh, we have the technology to make a K2 civilization right now if we actually had space-based infrastructure. And yet when people think of a K2 civilization, they're thinking some you know, giant galactic sprawling empire whose capital world is, is long since developed into some kind of massive Dyson swarm. Um, and that might be how most of them would be, but at the same time, it doesn't tell you anything about that civilization. They might be really low-tech, they might be really high-tech, they might be really populous, they might be a population of one, one matrioska brain. They might be completely digital, they might be biological, they might be made of silicon, we don't know. So any type of classification system you're gonna do for a civilization, though, is gonna end up with those same kind of problems. You can do things taxonomically, you know, but uh, you, can, you can take traits that every civilization would be expected to have, don't try to use a single trait, though, as measurement. How much power they have, how many people they have. You don't want to use all of the above. Um, our very first episode of the show, episode zero, we had a megastructural classification system when I brought it there, and I've never brought it up on the show since then because it was never really intended to be something for discussion. It was basically how do you qualify these things in terms of their size, their overall type, rotating versus artificial gravity or a shell wall, for instance, and the population they're designed to keep on them. Um, and that's probably the sort of thing you have in the future is not a single classification system of power or population, but all of the above. And you just have different letters, assignments, etc. to make that. Johnny Wing says, I'd love to see you go over the Orion Project again. 
I felt the nuclear option, went over it too briefly. Could you think of any way to improve the nuclear pulse propulsion idea and make it work? Um, you know, I think the poster would definitely agree with you that we would cover that way too briefly. It would be Stuart. Um, or beyond Nova's his usual call sign online. He is the one of our editors for the show on off, and he's very into nuclear propulsion um, as a researcher on it. But uh, I think the issue with post-nuclear propulsion is that you are basically using hundreds, if not thousands, of nuclear bombs to propel a ship. You can build a ship, still you have to handle that. The question is, can you build one trustworthy enough that you're going to let them have that? Uh, whereas you could probably do a light sail system a little bit easier. Um, nuclear propulsion in space, I wouldn't want to try to do that as an interstellar star drive until we've actually started using it locally more. In which case, we'll know a little bit better how to control it and how to use it more um, carefully and, and in a very efficient and uh, safe, hopefully safe manner. But uh, we probably should look at Project Orion again on Project Daedalus. But I think that for now, we, uh, we've we covered the basic drive systems as much as I'd like to in, in the immediate near future, maybe sometime next year. Thank you. Madruk Zeke says, what is the future of Sapiens? Will we see total self-awareness? or will non-sapient but hyper-intelligent beings lead the future? It's a really tricky question to separate sapience out from intelligence. Um, you know, sapience is a word that we try to use nowadays to distinguish something that's um, like us as opposed to just sentient. Now we'd say things like a horse or a whale or a cat is sentient. Um, sentient usually covers, in the past, covered intelligent species like ourselves, too. But we always say, yeah, a little bit better of a dividing line, something like sapiens. But you don't necessarily have to be sapient to be very intelligent. A computer has no sentience, has no sapiens. Um, I think that sapiens, and, and I usually probably use the term just personhood because it kind of removes a bit of it there. A person is something that recognizes itself as a person. Right? It might be rather dumb or might be rather smarter. Um, but that's that personhood that you'd be worried about. If you don't need that in some machine you're building or you're incapable of making that, then you don't do it. You don't want to just start making these things uh, have a desire and a will and a purpose of their own. So I think that in most cases where you're building machines built to a task, you will not make them sapient, uh, not make them a person, uh, assuming you even can, without having a really good reason to do so. And there's already plenty of people to do jobs we need people. So... If you make a super intelligent weather predictor, it doesn't necessarily need to have personality. You know, you can you can hire weathermen to have the personality when telling you about the weather. Anthony Cavallaro says, Hey Isaac, fusion scientist here. Have you looked into the Spark Arc projects at MIT Commonwealth Fusion Systems? It's familiar. Uh, MIT has been playing around with that sort of thing. That was I'm sorry, maybe it was supposed to say MIT. Oh, okay. <laughs> um I'll see now, I just like, I got confused with the polywell. Uh, there are a lot of prototype fusion systems in place. Um, I've seen one recently that was done by a, uh, a school kid for a high school experiment or a middle school science project. Um, and it does get hard to track which ones are developing to which degree. I was friends at Arizona State who were playing around with the system for it too. Um, and I can't say that I'm terribly familiar with Spark, so we might have to bypass that one for now. I'll look into it later. Sorry. Um, we have received a $10 donation from Protracted People's Pandemic. Thank you. And they want to know the thoughts on the likelihood of space travel when the alternative of hooking people into a computer matrix is material, materially cheaper and provides similar, if not equal, immaterial benefit. 
Is the great filter just VR? No, definitely not. It's, it's a very common suggestion, but it's actually probably one of the worst ways to solve the following paradox. Um, here is a critical notion. Um, if you want a computer to run yourself on, or to run millions of other people on, you need material and energy to build and run it. Uh, this solar system contains less than a trillionth of the galaxy's material and energy. If you want to have more of that, and you presumably do, then you would like to harvest it in some way. Whether you're bringing it back or setting up new places elsewhere doesn't really matter. You know, you're talking about digital existences. You could put a mass geoscopy around each individual system or build yourself something like a bulge ward uh, as just your big power supply for the whole thing. That raises the question of how you actually go out there and explore it. If you can make a virtual reality program where the people are engaging enough, the virtual characters seem real enough, they don't have to be people yet either, just real enough that you can actually say hello to them and have a conversation and feel like it's something you want to spend your time in. If you can create an artificial reality where the characters in it are good enough to make people want to abandon normal reality in big numbers, then you already have enough computer power, enough processing power, enough software capability to build an artificial probe that can go ahead and make copies of itself to basically go out there and do the von Neumann replicator thing. So you already have the technology to colonize the galaxy or scavenge it for resources to bring home and colonize heavier back here before you actually have a virtual reality like that. And I'd say, well, they don't want to go colonize the galaxy. The critical thing about a self-replicating machine that's smart enough to do its own work is you only ever have to build one of them. Um, and so all it requires is that at least one scientist uh, an engineering team have decided to actually build the thing before every last human decided to jump into VR. Uh, and that's it. So in that regard, it doesn't make for a very good forming paradox. Solution, anyway. Um, same for miniaturization. People say, well, if we go digital, we don't need as much energy to support each individual person or as much raw materials. Well, that's great. But whenever you're talking about exponential growth of a finite number, wait a few generations and suddenly you hit that peak again. Uh, things like miniaturization or digitalization only push it back maybe a dozen or a hundred generations at most, which is no time at all on the galactic stage. I'm talking a few centuries, a few thousand years maybe. And that's iffy too, because if you're in a digital civilization where everyone's thinking faster, experiencing life faster, then they're probably having generations faster too. So basically, miniaturization and virtual reality, they just don't work as fully paradox solutions. We have a question from Zachariah Pomisano. Thank you for that $10 contribution, Zachariah. And he says, Hi, Isaac. I just finished the chronology of episodes and still have a question. Does a black hole mass have an effect on its life from our perspective due to the rules of special relativity? Yes. Although, and let me just say real quick, since I know the chronology of episodes has over 300 in it right now, I'm always very impressed when it actually gets through the entire thing. <laughs> Um, black holes compass two ways of interest to us in, um, in relativity. In general relativity, uh, a black hole, obviously, that's where we get the constant in the first place. Time slows down nearby them. The question tends to be, if I take something like a neutron star that's really close to the black hole mass limit and I accelerate up to high speed, is it a black hole from someone else's perspective? And the answer is, if you're from that direction, it can be. Light slows down when it's leaving something like a neutron star. It's redshifting away. It gets dragged. If that thing is also moving away from you very quickly, yes, that will become invisible to you. And so you get that event horizon aspect while you're traveling away from it. Same as while you're traveling towards a black hole, its event horizon will shrink. You'll see it get smaller and you'll never actually reach it yourself. Uh, as to their lifetime, if you accelerate a black hole up to really high speed, 
relative to you, uh, is it going to decay long? As we know, black holes have, according to Stephen Hawking, a evaporation period of time. It's very long right, for anything that's stellar mass and natural. Very, very long, and the bigger it is, the longer it is, uh, by orders of magnitude. The question is that if I got up at relativistic speed, say 99% uh, of light speed, where time travels about a tenth the speed, is it also going to live ten times longer from our perspective? And the answer is yes. That's just how that works. Time is going slow from it, from our perspective. But of course, if you chose to chase the race up to it, get to it, you won't see it live longer. So it's kind of a yes and no solution to that one. Pyrex06, thank you for your $5 contribution. And their question is, is high gravity a Fermi solution? Have you heard the um, heard you need seven stage rocket at two to three G? What tech would allow aliens to get off of a high gravity planet? And is this an episode idea? We've actually talked about doing a high gravity episode because we had our life on a low gravity planet. And I think that actually is what we should come out and do. We just keep getting delayed on doing it, um, but not a Fermi paradox solution. Right? Um, if you're doing the, you know, um, get all your eggs out of a basket before you kill yourself thing with civilizations as a Fourier paradox, it certainly helps because every extra minute you've got all your eggs in one basket on that planet gives you more time to wipe yourself out. It means there's a lower probability you get enough. So if that's the main solution to the Fourier paradox, that civilizations destroy themselves when we get to our technological level if they don't get out into the galaxy first, um, then higher gravity planets will be less commonly featured in, in the galactic uh, civilization. Uh, however, there are many ways to get off a planet, and high gravity is certainly not helping the process, but it isn't necessarily hurting it that much either. You need a much stronger chemical rocket to get out of your solar system, but you still have, uh, off your planet that is, you still have the option of things like mass drivers or orbital rings. Is it harder to get up from them? Yes, absolutely. But you also can start taking advantage of options we don't normally bother with because they are minimal gains like, uh, well, vacuum balloons and uh, raccoons, uh, that rockets that are balloons that float up and then you launch from them. And those can help you deal with some of those issues. Hypersonic planes, uh, skyhooks, you start needing to use all of these. It's likely it would depress their rate of development, but they still know the sky's up there. And if we're going to develop systems that would get us off this planet for, you know, uh, dollars a pound, um, that we need to really be a spacefaring civilization, that's going to work still on other planets. It might be a little bit more expensive, but they'll be able to get up there. And so double the uh, gravity on that surface, they still can get off of it. They're just going to need to probably wait another generation or two. Atlas K says, everyone is asking practical space travel questions, and I just want to know which science fiction books Mr. Arthur would recommend. You know, we have the book of the month we do a lot of time, uh, although that's not always my favorite science fiction books. They're usually ones I'm very fond of. Um, they usually fit the topic of the show. Uh, I would definitely recommend Dennis e. Taylor's Barbivore series that we were mentioning earlier. That is a, a great book series, uh, starting with We Are Legion. Um, other science fiction books, I always recommend Alastair Reynolds' Revelation Space series. It's probably the best sci-fi series of, of the last decade. Um, Classics, The Foundation. I don't know how the TV show for it's going to work out, but the book series is great, at least the first three books. Um, the audio books connected to that series, like the robot novels by Asimov, also great. Um, Dune uh, by Frank Holbert, the book series is great. Uh, again, one of those cases where some of the sequels aren't necessarily as good. Uh, Ando's Game and a couple of the other novels, like Speaker for the Dead or Ando's Shadow by Austin Scott Card, other good classics. Um, there are so many of them. I pushed them off the shelf behind me. 
but uh, I don't know if you guys can actually read those titles for the screen. I think um, you mentioned many of them in your list already. Probably. If you go to our website, IsaacArthur.net, which uh, we usually link in episode descriptions, there is a tab that says Books, and that has a gigantically long list of books that we've recommended. I think there's a few hundred entries on it, so that's probably a good place to get started. And many of those aren't books, they're book series, so it should keep you something to read for several years. Or at least a very long winter. Yeah. Explosive RPG Gamer says, Will metallic hydrogen become practical, and how can it be produced in large quantities? Uh, I mean, the most obvious way to produce it in large quantities would be at the center of a gas giant, or at least its uh, upper core. That's the question that we don't know the answer yet is, can we actually keep it stable in anything we could build? It has to be maintained under such high pressure. And we still have so very little of it that we've actually produced in laboratories that we don't really know its properties very well. You know, when you're dealing with a few atoms or something, it's not as easy to get that good solid baseline, things like melting point and pressure and the triple point of material as it is when you've got a few liters of the stuff to be working with. So uh, metallic hydrogen has the potential to be the best chemical rocket fuel, period, uh, if we can make it, store it, and use it. We did an episode on reusable rockets, but it was also focused on metallic hydrogen early in the Upward Bound series, so like year three, I think it was. Uh, I believe the big news at the time was that SpaceX had just managed to land their first reusable rocket that way, so uh, see that one for more details on how metallic hydrogen works. Geekus Maxima says, we hear from people in the tech industry like Steve Wozniak and so on. How will we reach singularity in 2050 or so? Do you have any comments on this? I don't think we will reach a technological singularity uh, in the next century. I, I think it's a very popular concept, uh, popularized by folks like Vorno Vinge and Ray Kurzweil and others. And the basic reasoning goes like this. If I can build a computer that is capable of learning, or I can build a computer that's as smart as a human, it should be able to figure out how to build a smarter version of itself or a smarter computer. And the next one should be able to do it too. And the idea is that it would be able to do it faster. I'm not quite sure how that follows, that you'd be able to build a one smaller than you faster because you're smarter. You know, you're trying to build something even more complex. Humans have been trying to make a smarter human for several thousand years. Whole teams of humans, thousands of humans, have spent decades trying to make basic artificial intelligence that we still haven't really succeeded yet. It's very primitive. The assumption that if I turn on a computer that's just a little bit smaller than a human, it's going to magically, on its own, without a team of each other, be able to make a smarter one the next day, that we have to make another smarter one the next hour, that we make another smarter one the next minute. The, the exponential slope on technological singularity has never struck me as very logically sound. It's just, and, and again, even when something is logically sound, that doesn't mean that that's how it works out in reality. That's why we do science, right? When we actually look at the experimental evidence, the actual real universe, we often find that what's logically sound to us is nonsense. So, um, the idea of Moore's Law, of constant doubling of computers, the idea that you could just build a computer that's going to build a better computer the next day, I don't feel that there's a very strong argument for that. And you need that component to cause the technological singularity, because the idea is you have one supermind being created out of the blue. Improvements to computers, smarter computers, smarter people, these are probably all on the horizon. But the idea that there's just one that exponentially goes faster than all the others to bring about a technological singularity, that I, I don't think is, I think that's more science fiction concept. It's a good storyline. It's not very good science. I think this question ties in. It's from Abby Prakish. Could a Neuralink-like technology lead to the network intelligence composed of mind-melded humans forming the first super-intelligence? 
You know, I can never hear Neuralink anymore without thinking of the paper where they show you the mouse, they plugged a chip into its head, so it looks like it's got a mohawk uh, coming out of its skull where they wired it in. Uh, it's a great accomplishment, but it's a little creepy uh, and humorous. Uh, can you make a hive mind by wiring people together? Can you make a hive mind by wiring computers together? Yes, if you actually control the networking protocols and software. Don't assume because you can connect people together that would make some kind of hive mind or connectivity. It's like telepathy. Assume you could read human minds because they do emit signals, right? We can pick those up on MRIs. There's nothing coherent about that. You know, it's like assuming you could read a book by setting it on fire. Uh, they can't necessarily interpret that data uh, in some kind of easy format. If you want to build a hive mind by connecting people's brains together by something like Neuralink, it should be possible, but it shouldn't be an automatic or easy process either. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, we did do an episode on hive minds where we point out a lot like the word cyborg, and networked intelligence or a hive mind is a very relative term. We already exist in a hive mind. A social organism is a hive mind to some degree. You know, group intelligence. It just doesn't really have group personality as much. But even then, various groups or organizations tend to have a bit of a personality even if they change over um, personnel inside them. On that same note, when you invent something like handwriting, um, suddenly you have a hive mind that includes people who are not only far away from you in distance because they write your letters, but far away from you in time. You can talk to dead people. You can have dead people in your hive mind. So it's a bit of a relative term there. The question is whether or not it's desirable, and some people might find it would be or not, but I don't see me scenarios where you just do it on accident. I don't think you'd accidentally create a hive mind with a bunch of people just plugging into the internet with their brain as opposed to their smartphone. Uh, let's take one more question, then we'll go to break. Okay, we have a, a $10 donation from Nathan Gallup, and he says, what do you think the, of the belief that we should not explore new worlds because we could contaminate any possible microscopic biosphere? Will this idea have any influence on future exploration? It's a great question. Um, there's two key things on this. First is, if I come across a world that's got complex life on it out there, Obviously, we don't want to be contaminating that. And we're not really worried about spreading virus around. Those wouldn't likely be compatible. Be more worried about if the environment's anything like ours, all little microorganisms might outcompete theirs. Um, so you go and you send very sterile robots down the surface. You don't send people. Uh, and you might make that your normal process when you're investigating any world because it's so much easier to send a mechanical probe down first. That makes the most sense. And when you've done a lot of probing, then you find out if there's any life there and you say, well, it's okay to have people down there. And you might say, yes, if I find a world that has microscopic life on it right now, we, we don't want to touch that world because it's new and unique. If I find a billion worlds out there that have simple algae or, or basic microbes on them, no matter how alien, after I've cataloged enough of them, unless there's something interesting about them, we say, eh, it's just, a, it's just a bug, you know. So only we have relatively complex biology, I think, would you try to quarantine it after the initial ones. There's so much to be learned, though. It's not really a question of, should we preserve this for the sake of ethics? It's more of a, which is always a valid question, but also, should we preserve this for the sake of economy? You know, if you got into a planet with entirely different life basis for me on it, you want to study that. You don't want to wipe that out. That's got so many applications. So I don't think we have to worry too much about that conflict coming up into play. As to whether or not we ever need to worry about it all, we have to see how common life and how common complex life is out in the solar system, uh, sorry, in the galaxy. All right, we're going to go on break for a couple minutes, and we'll see you then. We'll be on break for a few minutes, so it's a great time to grab a drink and a snack, as I'm doing. It's also a good time to get more questions into our moderators for the second half of the show. 
As a side note, since these live streams tend to be the only times I'm on camera and folks get to look around my office and studio, I want to take a quick moment to thank Perry Stevens of Woodwalk By Me for the nice woodcut of the SFIA logo he sent me as a gift last month, hanging up behind my desk. If you want to check out more of his work, I'll leave the contact info up on the screen. Speaking of artists who work with the channel, I want to take a moment to thank all the animators and composers whose graphics or musical compositions appear on the show. It is a great pleasure to get to work with them and a great honor every time someone tells me the show inspired a painting, song, short story, or for that matter another YouTube channel or podcast. We always have a lot of questions we don't have a chance to get to each live stream, though I try to get those in the comments afterwards or to use a few to start the live stream off to give folks a chance to get questions in. But there was a question near the end of the last live stream by Bass Boylag asking about my opinions on cryonics and if I'd freeze myself given the chance. The answer is probably yes, though the technology is still pretty primitive, and what you're really doing is gambling that we can preserve you against better future technology. It got me and Sarah talking about it and I remember that we had never done an episode dedicated to cryonics, except for our Sleeper Ships episode which is more about using it for space colonization. So I decided that we would do an episode on that, Cryonics, Frozen Civilizations, and that will be out mid-winter early next year. If you didn't know, we tend to get about a third of our episode ideas from audience polls and much of the remainder originates in that sort of fashion. Some member of the production crew or audience mentions a concept or idea and it sticks in my brain and I need to write an episode on it. So if Bass Boylag is watching today, thanks for the episode idea, and to everyone else down the years who has suggested an episode or mentally prodded me into thinking of one, thank you. I am genuinely grateful to have an audience full of fun and creative folks. With all that said, let's get back to the show. And we're back, sorry about that. Um, so it looks like we have a bunch more questions, so we're going to try to speed up while we take these, uh, and my wife say will continue to read those after me. Okay, so the next question that we have here is from Brick Muppet, and thank you for the contribution. And they want to know, regarding your recent low-tech ep- spacefarers episode, how early could we have gone into space? For instance, could the British have done so in the 1930s, a manned moon mission, and could it have been made to work? Potentially. Um, you know, we tend to think of World War II as in so many ways advancing rocketry for the obvious reasons, but we were already starting to do some of that even without that, and it's entirely possible that without the war, you never want to assume that wars necessarily speed up technological progress. I don't think, though, that you really would have gotten that moon mission going until it was a good deal cheaper uh, unless you had a lot more motivation to get moving on that project. So I think the space race and World War II probably did cause us to get there a little bit faster than we would have otherwise. Different planet, different psychology, different history, maybe, though, they could have got there a bit sooner, possibly in the 30s, but really pushing it. You really need computers for that, too. Gary Itano, thank you for your $27 contribution, and he asks, will Earth-based hydroponics make a significant um, dent in planetary water scarcity? By when? And how to prioritize? Yes, that amount is a GND tip-off. Um, the trick on that is that, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be hydroponics either, it could be greenhouses. Inside a greenhouse you have a very tiny amount of water usage relative to opening or farming because it's not really going anywhere, it evaporates right back down. Hydroponics are very water intensive, but again you're recycling that water a lot better. 
the key, of course, with hydroponics is the assumption that you are actually doing that under a greenhouse too, because otherwise you'd be losing water very quickly with hydroponics compared to soil. Both have the option to massively increase the amount of food we can produce per acre or hectare of land. Uh, the biggest usage for those is can we make robots that are very good at tending crops without uh, being able to use tractors as easily inside large greenhouses or hydroponics facilities. So if we get the automation up to it, then yes, they have the option to allow us to increase food production on the planet probably a hundredfold. San Kong, thank you also for your very generous gift. And he says, I always enjoy your videos. Keep going. Love you. Also, thank do you. you think we can use metallic hydrogen for rocket propulsion? The pressure seems too high. It might be. It might turn out that you need something like graphene or better or even active support to keep the actual rocket from exploding. Again, we just do not know the real pressures involved yet, and it might be that they're too much for any material you might be able to build. Metallic hydrogen may well turn out to basically be your densest material you can make out of that kind of thing, and it might explode under any normal compression. But we might find some tricks around that too. We'll have to have macroscopic quantities with first. Zoot suit. Jay-Z says, how would you expect taxation to play out in space commerce? Uh, almost initially. Uh, the, well, to quote Vetinari from the Discord series, the key to taxation is getting the maximum milk for the minimum moo out of a cow. Um, expect that if asteroid mining starts turning out vast quantities of gold, for instance, that uh, very shortly afterwards the, the, the treasurer and the tax man will be there to start asking questions about how much of that you'd like to donate to the cause at war. So I'm sure you would have taxation in space, but it is likely to be a little bit more challenging initially. <laughs> Alistair Lachleal uh, also donated five dollars and you. asks, is it even possible to make a human level or higher AGI without sapience? Hard to imagine that level of IQ without at least apparent self-awareness. I don't know that you could have, I mean, it just depends on how you're measuring intelligence. Uh, a supercomputer has more processing power than an ant. Um, we, we've passed that point some time back. Whether or not it is going to be a, enough that it actually could be intelligent on its own, though that's not the question. You might be able to make something as big as a Matrioska brain, a solar system-wide computer without it being sapient. But I think the more brains you give it, the more likely you are to potentially be generating one, and probably the easier it would be to do it on accident or on purpose. So we just don't know yet, though. Virginia Hansen says, what's your opinion of planetary production? If there is life on Mars and Venus, should we preserve them or use the planets since the life will never be sentient and will die off anyway? There is the question of whether or not it's even worth trying to quarantine a place for millions of years, um, if that's plausible. Can you really quarantine a planet for millions of years? And if you can't, then it doesn't matter because it's going to get contaminated and destroy whatever primitive life is there. It's a lot easier to quarantine something like an O'Neill cylinder, which is why I often suggest the best way to preserve nature isn't to move the civilization off of Earth, but to build your protected biomes inside an O'Neill cylinder where you can keep it nice and safely inside. Uh, that might be the way we go with a lot of these things, is to put little nature preserves on them um, and or, to, or around them in orbit. And again, that just comes down to a question of two key things. Do you want to preserve microbes once you've studied them and have samples of them? And uh, do you really have that option? Because in many cases, it might be really hard to quarantine them, especially if most of your civilization says, why are we preserving microbes? We've studied them. They don't have any importance beyond that. Willie Tepps asks, someone mentioned that you could ignite a gas giant by dropping a nuclear device into its hydrogen helium core. Is this possible? 
Not really. Um, you could probably do it by dropping, well, you could do it by dropping a neutron stall into it, for instance, but that's not really igniting the gas giant. The neutron stall, while vastly smaller, also vastly outmasses. So what you're really doing is igniting the neutron stall with some new fuel from a gas giant. Same for a black hole, but you might be just cramming a micro black hole in there. And so long as it's uh, absorbing matter a little bit faster than it's emitting uh, uh, waste energy, it should be able to actually cause a fusion reaction around it. But dropping a nuke in there by itself would achieve very little. DT Phenom, hey Isaac, how do you think history will be preserved and studied in the future? How will historians deal with the light lag when it goes into centuries and millennia? That, that um, is an interesting thought because you'd have to be a really old professor to get to... And verifying anything gets hard too. You want to write back a note to say, well, we got this signal from you guys from a thousand years ago that said this is how the rebellion worked and we were worried the codes might not have been the normal ones we for authentication. Was this a valid source or were you hijacked by your rebels? And they write back saying, no, well, of course not. Oh, hey, all new Leo from a thousand years ago, you know? That was 10,000 years ago and, and of course that's how history played out. It's not just trying to keep history over a billion worlds and a billion years. It's trying to keep a billion different you know, arguing copies of it around. She got what the neighbors report, what you report, whatever, and sanitized, changed around, and revised, all mixing together. It'd be very hard in many ways. But a lot of key stuff should stick around too, I'd imagine. Um, so history, you might see the end of history, but then some people say we kind of already reached the end of history in terms of we record everything now. So very debatable point. Okay, we have another question here from another Isaac, Isaac Freeman, and he is donating $228. Thank you. And he says, what do you think of the idea that the only civilizations that survive long enough to have space-faring civilizations become irrationally cautious and will therefore hide all their signatures to avoid all possible detections by another civilization to maximize chances of survival? Uh, the key there has to be irrationally conscious, uh, cautious, because if they're rationally cautious, it doesn't really behoove you to hide. Uh, as we were joking, in nature, um, and we talked about this in the Hidden Aliens episode, we kind of go through these arguments in more details. In nature, if you want to protect your territory that you need to, to live, you announce that's your territory, um, because it might bring a fight on, but it's a lot more likely to cause people to avoid it, because fights are expensive, even if you're bigger than the other guy, you know, maybe one in ten times he's going to win, so you go through ten of those fights and you're dead, right? You avoid conflict where possible because it's expensive, so you mark your territory. So in space, you mark that by putting up a beacon that says, here I am. Um, you also have the problem that if you are attacking people who come into your territory and they didn't know it's your territory, um, they're going to send an investigation to find out what happened. And if that doesn't come back, they're going to send an armada to ask more, you know, pointed questions. So hiding not the best approach, but it might be an irrational approach. The question is whether or not that's one to be followed by most civilizations, and I don't think that leads to quietness. I think what you do is, if you really want to avoid transmitting from your homeworld, even assuming you decide that was a good idea, you launch a space probe out in a different direction for a thousand years, and then you tell it to transmit and send a hello signal and send back any relays to that. So it's basically you're playing telephone tag by bouncing the signal off some other place. That way you're potentially getting more information. The bird that knows what's good says, do you think augmented reality or virtual reality will be more prominent in the near future, and which has a stronger capacity to change the world? Augmented reality would always end up as more prominent because it would be something you could do while you're doing your normal day-to-day -day stuff. Remember, augmented reality is something as simple as 
you've got the, a little clock you can see in your normal field of vision letting you know what time it is or that an incoming phone call is happening. That's augmented reality. Virtual reality is likely to be mostly a recreational or training thing. Uh, so it might have a very big role, uh, especially if you're using it to educate children who then become very comfortable using it as adults. But I think that its principal role would be entertainment educationally on, whereas augmented reality would be the day-to-day -day thing. Um, they are different in their approaches, though. I think you, if you got the one, you see a lot of the other two. Paul Dickinson asks, are there any ways for an interstellar civilization to wipe themselves out? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the problem with natural disasters is that they have, I mean, you can't even, with like a quasar, really sterilize a galactic civilization. But um, as an example, if you have an alien fleet coming towards you, say, well, let's go ahead and scatter ourselves off to a million colonies uh, so they can try and chase us down. Well, they're small. They saw your engines flaring off so they can hunt you down. If you're an interstellar civilization, you are incredibly vulnerable to anyone who really wants you dead and is smart. They know where you live. They're just going to go and pound on your houses. It just takes them longer to get to all of them. Balsh gives a donation of $5 and says, Would a world war accelerate or decelerate space expansion? What other world events may drastically accelerate or decelerate space travel progress? Um, I mean, we were just talking about that a little bit earlier with the uh, game the moon example. You know... History is always a little bit of an opinion-based thing. There is a, a, a general feeling that World War II accelerated scientific progress uh, and that the aftermath of the Cold War did too. I would say the Cold War did a lot more for science than World War II did, and I'd point out a core concept there being that almost nobody died in that war. Yeah, I mean, yes, there were casualties, but it was nothing like World War II. And no one was destroying your scientific resource facilities. No one was killing your scientists. No one was blowing up your universities. And none of your students who were enrolled in those universities or in those research labs were off shooting people for a living instead. They were at those facilities doing research. So I would say that what World War II mostly did was cause us to spend a lot of money on those things. Prior to that, we really didn't spend as much money on education and uh, at the university level or on funding research facilities. And so while war certainly, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, there are other sources of necessity uh, to mother inventions besides uh, war for it, warfare. So it can help, but I don't think it's necessary for it. Everton Plaza, also a $10 donation, and he says, Speculative Fermi Solution. What if the galaxy is so abundant with life that aliens feel the need to obscure observations to test them rather than uplifting a primitive species? To prevent overcrowding? Uh, you can't really prevent galactic overcrowding um, by preventing other people from joining the community. Uh, you either curtail your own exponential growth and get everybody else to do it, or you don't. So if they are of the opinion that the only reason that we don't have an overcrowded galaxy would be because they're not letting other people into the club, that's not going to work out very well. They just say, well, we'll let you into the club if you agree not to explode your population out and claim a million boards for yourself. Um, it's always possible, though, but it's a lot of effort to go through to, to obscure yourself. Um, and there's also the question is, why is it that this new species that's later on the scene is somehow less worthy of being a, a galactic civilization than the other ones who are already on the scene? So why are you going to keep them down rather than letting them come out and join you, especially when you can't control the terms of that joining battle? If they get out there otherwise and they find you've been hiding yourself from them, that creates in the moment of introduction a bit of a hostility, I think. Not really the best approach possible, but I don't think so. Not the way I do it, at least. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Protracted People's Pandemic, uh, they had a question earlier, and they say, great response, thanks. 
and are giving a gift of $20 along with a second question. Thank you very much. Do you have thoughts on Henry Bergson? Bergson was a philosopher who beat Einstein in a debate. He thinks we think of time like we think of space, but that is wrong. Space provides for objects and time for subjects. I know the name, but I'm afraid I'm not terribly read up on him. Um, scientists often don't meet the best philosophers and vice versa, uh, although science is natural philosophy. And, and sadly, I would actually say very few scientists spend as much time on philosophy as they should. I know I'm a little behind that myself, too. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid I'm just not familiar enough with Bogson's arguments to be able to say whether or not he actually beat Einstein in that debate fairly or not. But Einstein you know, was... Uh, working with very new concepts, so he might have been overlooking very good responses and rebuttals too for all I know. Brick Muppet, thank you for your $10 donation. And regarding your low-tech, excuse me, regarding your recent low-tech spacefarers episode, how early could we have gone into space? Oh, I did ask that one already, I believe. Okay. <laughs> um, that was the question on the manned moon. Um, Marcus Will five pound donation what would your argument be against the idea of delaying exploring mars until we fix problems on earth walk and chew bubblegum um you don't solve your problems with uh this planet by not going and venturing other planets many of the technologies that would help you terraform or travel to other worlds be of vast use here but again, just an example, solar power does not really work on Earth as well as we would like it to. You got clouds, you got nighttime, um, and you got space limitations. Uh, space is full of space. It's got very few clouds and it doesn't have any nighttime. You know, space is eternal daylight. So it's great for solar power. Uh, many of our world's problems in terms of power would be solved just by going ahead and um, being able to transmit power down from power satellites we discussed before, or from having a much better nuclear power supply available from something like the moon. Um, many of our industries would do better off in space too. All the technology you need to terraform plants applies to fixing Earth's issues ecologically too and vice versa. So I don't accept the idea that we should be delaying any of these things. But it being it's like saying, let's stop fusion research until we've cured cancer. Some people are focused on cancer resource, some people are focused on fusion. You can prioritize a bit, but only to a degree. You get diminishing returns by trying to dump stuff on things, especially when they're all kind of tied together to some degree. Antares MC, question, mostly for world building. I've set a story on a globular cluster to go a bit around light lag. How much hand wavium would be needed to make it habitable? A globular cluster, well, you probably would have parts of a globular cluster that were actually habitable, uh, especially on the edges. It just depends on how tight it is and how old it is. Um, I don't think you need too much hand waving at all, especially if you weren't implying that life evolved there. Rather, if they'd settled there, no problem at all. There's going to be plants around there, and you could even colonize the core of the galaxy, not the actual core core where the black hole's at, though that's an option too, but that's very tiny, the small solar system. Uh, you have extra problems to deal with in terms of more radiation, more light, more perturbations, but nothing that a civilization able to reach that place in the first place wouldn't be able to handle. Ghost Doctor, I would like to know what Isaac thinks the most probable course to interplanetary colonization will be among the possibilities. When and whether we'll make it before ruining the Earth. Um, I firmly believe that we will get to other planets and get colonized before we ruin the planet because I tend to feel very firmly that we won't do the latter. Um, we, you know, you could, you always have problems facing ourselves. We've done very good at managing to fix, avoid, or, or mitigate the damage from other previous crises. Um, 
patience and optimism help. And they're not always pointed, but I usually find life is much better if you approach them that way. As to our first colonization target, I would say the moon, then the asteroid belts, except I'm sure we'll end up doing Mars before we do most of the asteroid belt too, because we seem to really want to. But I don't think Mars really offers us that much as a colony, other than practice. Time O'Brien, do you think it's smart to start our real outside Earth activities by colonizing a planet instead of starting with bigger habitats and space installations? I'm sorry, I guess that's similar. <laughs> I guess we kind of just answered that one. And we are trying to get through these faster because I gather there's a bit of a backlog. Uh, I've already passed our normal time, but we did start late uh, due to the technical errors. Um, the moon's the first place to really get colonized for resources, but we're not really all that interested in colonizing the moon. Uh, we're interested for raw materials. So that, and that's kind of a key thing. If we want to colonize a planet, that becomes a focus, it's a purpose. Uh, but if you just want raw materials to expand into space, start with the moon, start with the asteroid belts, and build around Earth, and build where you need to. So Isaac Freeman has a second uh, generous contribution for today, and he says, What do you think of the idea that the only civilizations that survive long enough to have space-faring civilization... Did I read this one earlier? Did you? Become irrationally cautious and will we therefore did, yeah. hide they, all their signatures. They signatures. Repeat in the... No, I'm sorry. I, I think maybe I did misread that one. Okay. Um, Lacuna Craft, $10 donation. Thank Love you. the work you do, and I'm wondering your thoughts on landing on planets versus just using them for their resources. Space habitats seem to have a huge amount of benefits compared to the planetary colony. Did we just do that question, didn't we? Or something very similar? Uh, well... Everyone knows I, I'm a big fan of space habitats, so the more we can be building them up, um, the better. You, know, you can make a space habitat to be almost any kind of ecology setup environment that you want to be, planetary more limited, and you have to do all or nothing. You have to colonize the entirety of the planet in most cases, as opposed to just putting one island-sized cylinder hab. Joseph Vizcoletti. Five pound donation. Would it be practical to build unmanned space infrastructure, which is using fusion power, fission power, and space reactors for cooling? I'm sorry, fission power and space for reactor cooling. Yes, but you gotta keep in mind when you're as close to the sun as we are, you are in a state of perpetual light. So the first thing you have to do is build a big mirror around yourself, a big shade to keep that light off you, so you can actually cool down. And you do want it to be a mirror because otherwise you're absorbing all that heat. Then you can do radiators. You could potentially be doing that all the way up by the sun. So it's, you can cool anywhere in space with a big umbrella. Uh, but you're often going to want that power anyway. If you're trying to block that all out, why not just use it as your heater too? So yes, you can use it as a cooling system, uh, radiating fins. But I think you probably always use that in combination with sucking up that energy too. <laughs> Akaros with a 20-pound donation. Have you heard of Gavin Wince's Existix theory of three-dimensional time or H plus H negative Higgins boson. Also, what are your thoughts on hidden antimatter in the universe being responsible for strange things not explained by science? I have heard of that, but I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I barely remember any discussion of it. I am not as updated on Higgins boson stuff as I should be, and all I remember for that is just the name. Uh, as to hidden antimatter, it would, I mean, if there was an equal amount of antimatter produced as normal matter, it presumably has been heightened somewhere. Uh, but I'm not thinking of any strange anomalies that it could be causing that would that would have the function we'd expect antimatter to have. And while antimatter is super rare, we do know its properties really well. So you'd expect all those anomalies to correspond to what you'd expect from antimatter popping up. Okay, I have three more questions from today that I think we can get to um, in our time frame here. We have a 10-pound donation from Hiroshi. 
And he says, would a strange matter gun be a game changer? There's a thought that with, uh, well, there are six types of quarks. Up and down make up almost everything in the universe that we're used to dealing with. You also have the strange charm and bottom and top. Uh, I'm not sure why we have a top and a bottom quark as well as an up and down quark, but we do. <laughs> the strange quark is thought to potentially be able to form atoms, but turns everything into strange quarks. Like, we were concerned that if you had a, a, a strange, a stable strange quark piece of matter fall into a star, it might turn the entire star into strange matter. The basis for that, in terms of having tested out, is very hypothetical. I'm not even sure if, if that's still allowed under the current theories, but if it did have that property, obviously that would be a, a, a incredibly potent weapon, like anything else that you're deploying, that it kind of has a uh, escalating effect. If you can shoot a seed of strange matter or something and it turns out into strange matter, wow, that what a weapon, because it's probably going to blow up the planet if you hit it with one little particle of strange matter then. Um, you can't just change around all the quark bases of some planet and not have it explode, basically. So uh, if it works that way, then yes, that is a very, very powerful weapon. Tom Smith has a $5 donation. Do you think the Star Trek replicator or something close to it will ever be viable? No, never. Uh, in the way that we see it mostly used, which is to get tea or gray hot, yes, Um in the sense that you could probably very rapidly spit out a hot water and, and tea flavoring into it. Very fast processing of food or things like that, very customizable things, yes. But that kind of rapid assembly, especially when they say they're assembly out of rye, don't you like that? Um, that, even if you had cheap teleportation like they have in Star Trek, um, should result in vast explosions and, and, and deadly levels of radiation every time you used it. <laughs> I think people tend to overestimate the amount of underestimate the amount of energy involved. This cup, if it were made out of you know, if we totally turn this into raw energy, this is about a kilogram here, um, and it should go off at what ten to seventeen joules of energy if it was just exploded. In which case, that would be what several hundred megatons of nuclear explosion. It'd be it'd be devastating. You know, it, it is critical to understand that when you start trying to assemble bits of matter out of nothing that you're going to have a lot of spillover to as heat and energy. So I don't see anything like a Star Trek replicator ever being out there. You just manufacture things in seconds like that. No. The Nguyen Gyep has donated uh, 50 something. When do you think we will move on to more advanced propulsion methods and what new technology in that field do you think that we will see? You know, it depends on what you mean by more advanced. Uh, if you're talking about like the ones we have right now on the drawing board or prototypes of, but haven't actually built in mass, like an ion drive, uh, Vasmir, uh, or even like light proportion. We often like to talk about using solar sails or laser proportion. Those are not really what I think of as new proportion as new theory. And so the other way, like the Alcubierre drive would be. Um, on the other hand, any one of those could suddenly hit the prototyping, testing, and, and real economic and industrial usefulness level in years or decades, something like that. And it's hard to predict how long that would happen. I never thought reusable rockets was going to be something we'd see in a decade. And uh, this I have to say with SpaceX, they really surprised me there. Any one of these technologies, I'd be only thought it was being much easier to do than a reusable rocket that could land itself. Um, but we'll just have to see how that kind of develops. I would tend to bet the big focus for interplanetary travel for now will be on the ion drive. Uh, just because you could potentially do that with solar power and not have to use nuclear, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable in terms of getting the resource up there. So 
ion drive is probably going to be the biggest focus for new proportion for interplanetary travel for now. Uh, do we have any other questions or are we good to wrap up for the day? Well, that was the three that we were planning okay. to get to. So right. I think we'll have to save the rest for uh, kicking off our November live stream. Right. We sure will. If you've got any other questions from the live stream, we do try to carry those over the next time. And you can also put them in the comments. I usually try to get back to them within inside a day or so to give some answers. So uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. Sorry for the early hiccup with the technical issue started. And we will see you next month. And we will also see you next Thursday. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.